When the Nazis started to destroy the European Jews, millions of non-Jews in Europe had to decide their stance. Would they help the Nazis, help the Jews, or do nothing? Sadly, few helped. But this week on The Land and the Book, we're going to look at heroes who committed to defying the Holocaust. Don't miss our conversation about courage, cowards, and kindness. Welcome to The Land of the Book with Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Great to connect, and boy, we've got stories again this week. John, it's amazing what's been happening in the Middle East uh, beyond our control. We've been focusing on events here in our country, uh, but a lot's been taking place over there. Well, let's start with a look at current events from the Middle East. This coming week, of course, is the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. What impact will the new administration have on the Middle East and what challenges will they face? You know, in a perfect world, President Biden would postpone making major changes to Middle East policy so he could focus on more pressing issues here at home, like Well, like the pandemic, revving up the economy, trying to bring peace and harmony to a divided nation. Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And in the case of the Middle East, ready or not, here it comes. One of the first tests is going to be Iran, and they're already pressing to see how far they can push him. They've announced they're increasing uranium enrichment to 20 percent, which is just a short technical leap away from being able to produce a nuclear weapon. This could cut the time needed to produce a bomb to as little as six weeks. They also announced that unless the U.S. lifts its sanctions against them, they'll kick out the U.N. nuclear inspectors in February. They want to see if President Biden will bend to their demands. The Palestinians are also working hard to curry favor with the new administration, promising new elections and agreeing to possible negotiations with Israel, but on their terms, of course. Uh, Biden has hinted at changes in the U.S. approach to the Middle East that will more closely resemble those of the Obama administration. He wants to re-engage Iran while pressuring Saudi Arabia and Egypt over their human rights records. Some believe he'll also take a more hardline approach toward Turkey. Uh, It looks as if the new administration will try to shift support away from Sunni nations and try to build bridges to Iran and the Shiite communities. And of course, right in the middle of all of that is Israel. Though expressing support for Israel, the new administration will pressure them to adopt a two-state solution to the Palestinian issue and to make more concessions to the Palestinians. Now, all that might be what the new administration wants to accomplish, but if history has taught us anything, it's that what someone wants in the Middle East and what they can get can be entirely different. Uh, One thing is certain, though, the new president will need the wisdom of Solomon to navigate these dangerous waters. For sure. Well, a change in administration might also be on the horizon for the Palestinians. Uh, What do we know about their plans for new elections, Charlie? As one political pundit put it, only in the Palestinian Authority can you have a president who is currently serving the 17th year of his four-year term. Abbas has announced unity talks and even elections before, but this time it does seem to be more serious. He's expected to announce by January 20 the dates for holding new elections for the Palestinian Authority president, for parliament, and for the Palestine National Council, which is the PLO's legislative body. Their central election committee will need at least four months to prepare for elections, so the earliest they could be held would be in late May or early June. There is real uncertainty in Israel, though, about what might happen should elections take place. The last election for president was back in 2005. That's when Abbas took office. A year later, parliamentary elections were held. Hamas won. 
and that triggered a power struggle between Hamas and Abbas's party. Hamas took over Gaza, and the Palestinian Authority under Abbas took over the West Bank. Hamas has refused to recognize the existence of the state of Israel, so what would happen if they were to win these new elections? And that's a very real possibility because most Palestinians believe the current Palestinian Authority leadership is totally corrupt. In the past, the U.S. has somewhat naively pushed for democratic elections in the Middle East. Well, that's when the Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt and when the Arab Spring led to the rise of ISIS. So what happens if Hamas wins this election, but then still refuses to acknowledge Israel and instead threatens Israel from the West Bank as they've done from Gaza? Uh, There are still many issues that would need to be worked out before elections. Will Hamas be required to commit to peace before being allowed to run? Will Arabs living in East Jerusalem be allowed to vote? Will the Palestinian Authority and Hamas be able to set aside two decades of animosity and distrust? All that to say, this could be a very intense election campaign. Yeah, for sure. Well, whether you're listening online, on air, or maybe uh, listening to a podcast, welcome to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And as always in this opening segment, we're trying to work our way through a list of the top stories that have come out of the Middle East. Well, vaccines for the COVID virus are now available, but the rollout seems to be rather slow, except in Israel. Charlie, how has Israel been able to get so many of its people vaccinated, and what lessons can we learn from them? Yeah, and John, the numbers really are impressive. Earlier this week, the U.S. approached the 3% mark. That is, three of every 100 people have received the vaccine in our country. And we're one of the leading countries in the world in that regard. In contrast, Israel has vaccinated almost 10 times that number. Over 22 of every 100 people there have already received the vaccine. Now, they have less people, but they also have less healthcare workers, and they face other problems like Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, and that takes up a lot of their national resources. So what have they done? Well, first, they made a calculated decision to pay more for the vaccine and, in return, secure more doses. Now, that at first sounded foolish, but by doing so, they'll be able to get their economy back on track sooner. You know, think how much we're paying just to help people who are out of work, mm-hmm. you know, and all that for getting a vaccine $10 a dose cheaper. Then they got organized for rapid distribution. Instead of a gradual rollout taking months to vaccinate different groups, they began a mass inoculation program. Israelis receive an automated phone call when they're eligible. Once they respond to that call, they get a text message within minutes, giving them a specific time and place to go. One friend said he was told to report to his nearby vaccination site at 1.52 p.m. He showed up, and within five minutes of registering, he received a shot. Israel also set up a system to avoid wastage. At the end of the day, if there is still some vaccine left, the system contacts others in that area, inviting them to come and be vaccinated. You know, so what can we learn from Israel? Well, instead of a patchwork, bureaucratic approach, uh, this ought to be mobilized as a national priority. We need to make better use of technology to administer the program. Uh, we need to commit to the necessary resources required to guarantee success. Now, it's probably too late in the game for us to follow Israel's lead with our vaccination program, but we can certainly learn some lessons from them that could help in any future crisis. Well, finally, this Can water scarcity ever be a blessing in disguise? According to an official with Israel's National Water Company, the answer is a resounding yes. 
How has resource-poor Israel become such a water superpower? Yeah, an Israeli official certainly grabbed attention when he announced, quote, Israel is blessed by its lack of water resources. What he meant was that Israel's lack of natural water resources has required them to manage their water supply more carefully. That lack made them very inventive. From pioneering drip irrigation to implementing large-scale water desalination, but in the process, they've also become a leader in managing water security, from protecting cyber threats to assuring the safety of the actual water supply. Their entire approach rests on four main concepts, ownership of resources, measurement, centralized control, and self-financing. The state controls all water rights. The water belongs to the public, and it's managed for the public's benefit. They also measure all water that's used, even the water used in agriculture. As one official said, if you don't measure, you can't manage. The centralized control rests with the water authority. It's not politicized. And self-financing is also key. Israel's water sector uses its own capital to fund development. They aren't subsidized by the government. And at the same time, they don't add taxes to the water bill as a means of generating income for the government. Israel shares its water expertise with other countries. Unfortunately, many of those countries think it's all about the technology, while Israel tries to teach them the importance of efficient management. At a time of dwindling water resources and increased population, the world can learn much from Israel's approach to water management. And that's a look at current events for the week with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, uh, you're going to return in a few minutes with your devotional. What's our subject and what's our text? One of the most crucial passages in the Bible, Genesis 12, I want to talk about the Abrahamic covenant and its importance not only for Israel, but also for us. That's all ahead on The Land and the Book, where our website is thelandandthebook.org. You can always go there to learn about past guests, today's guests, future programs, and more, including books that uh, Charlie and I have written at thelandandthebook.org. Up next conversation about courage, cowards, and kindness from World War II, all ahead on The Land and the Book. When the Nazis started to destroy the European Jews, millions of non-Jews in Europe had to decide their stance. Would they help the Nazis, help the Jews, or do nothing? This is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger. Before we get to that question, let's address the question of how you and I can share the love of Yeshua with our Jewish neighbors, co-workers, friends, and relatives. Here's what I mean. What's an easy bridge builder you and I can use to reach out to our Jewish friends? Beth Tavalon is congregational administrator and co-leads the women's ministry at Olive Tree Congregation. What about bridge builders, Beth? Well, I've met several Jewish people who've come to know the Lord just by reading the New Testament. Hmm. And so I've kind of made it my mission to give New Testaments to Jewish people. And uh, I usually choose one that has the plan of salvation in the front of the book so that I can explain this is for today. And these little pages here in the front explain why the New Testament is for today. This is not offensive to your Jewish friend? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Um, I think a lot of it is in how you present it. If you are embarrassed, then they're not going to want it. If you present it as the most valuable gift they could get, then they're going to receive it well. 
Now, this uh, presumes a pre-existing friendship or relationship there, so there's a certain amount of trust and respect. Sometimes, but not always. Not I've, always. I've given scriptures to people I don't know very well right. and have had good results. Beth Tavelin with a bridge builder giving the word of God to your Jewish friend here on The Land and the Book. The ugly truth is this. During the nightmare that we know as the Holocaust, only a very small percentage of non-Jews resisted or helped the Jewish people. The great majority did nothing. This is a conversation about the courageous who did get involved. Our guest today, Dr. Tim Dowley. Dr. Dowley is a historian who has written widely on church history and Christian music. Some of his recent titles include Christian Music, A Global History, Atlas of Christian History, and the book that we're drawing from today, Defying the Holocaust. Dr. Dowley lives in London, where he joins us by phone. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Tim. Thank you very much, uh, John. Your book looks at 10 courageous Christians who supported Jews during the Holocaust. Important stories for sure. But I have to ask, why this book now, so many years removed from World War II? I think because uh, this is a story we must never forget. We can never forget. And and, um, there are survivors from the Holocaust, but they are in their last years. They're dying out. And we must always remember this terrible event in European history. And I think the best way of doing that is by stories, stories of individuals who helped. As a resident of London, let me ask you, how does today's secular Europe view the Holocaust differently maybe than secular America? Or are the perceptions pretty much the same? I, difficult to tell. You know, I've lived in London all my life, and I went to a school where there were a lot of Jewish boys, so I've always been aware of the of the Holocaust and the, and the problem. But my feeling is that, in fact, consciousness and, and awareness of the Holocaust has actually grown in the last few years. I think mm. that the Holocaust Memorial Day is something that's marked increasingly as as we go on, which is a, obviously a very good thing. Um, as you're also aware, in, particularly in parts of Europe, but in the UK too, anti-Semitism is a very, very live problem. Yeah. Um, even today, as I speak, one of the um, issues tearing one of our political parties apart is uh, accusations of anti-Semitism. Well, before digging into some of the profiles that you bring to life in the book, let's look at the big picture. At least 11 million died in the concentration and death camp system, and at least 4 million at Auschwitz-Birkenau alone. I was there a year ago and was just blown away. The uh, Nazis murdered approximately 6 million Jews and at least another 5 million non-Jews. More than 1 million children were murdered, many newborn or unborn. The system comprised major camps and hundreds of subsidiary camps stretching like giant malign spider webs across Europe. That's your description. Having read quite a bit about this era, Tim, having trekked through Auschwitz and Birkenau, I still scratch my head and ask, how? How could this have happened in our, quote, civilized world? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that is a huge question still, but... Several things. I mean, one is that the the latent anti-Semitism in Europe, um, you know, unfortunately fanned by people like Martin Luther, who said terrible, terrible things about the Jews. Um, In 19th century Europe, there were scientists adding this horrible racist science, talking about inferior races. And this was obviously all picked up by uh, Hitler and his Nazi followers, 
when they took over and had this dictatorship, they were able to implement these policies and the country went with them. The lies increased and the the, uh, the possibility in that, you know, what everybody had thought of as the most civilised country was enabled to uh, go through with these appalling deeds. It didn't take everybody to take part. It just needed the rest of the population to turn the other way, to... You know, to look the other way while it was happening. People obviously knew what was happening, but they, they didn't want to get involved. Dr. Tim Dowley is a historian who has written the book Defying the Holocaust. Well, let's talk about uh, somebody who stood up courageously and defined the Holocaust. Introduce us to a lesser-known story that you feature in the book. Let me talk to you about um, Jane Haining. She actually was brought up in, in near Glasgow in Scotland, and... She was a keen Christian. She was a churchgoer. She happened to be at a missionary rally when somebody talked about a hostel in, in Hungary, in Budapest, Hungary, and she felt she should uh, volunteer for this. So she qualified as a nurse, went out to Hungary in the 1930s, early 1930s and worked in this hostel, all for girls, some of them Jewish, some of them Christian, um, some of them from deprived backgrounds, some from quite well-to-do backgrounds. And she was very much loved by the girls there. Um, then war came, and the Missionary Society we, she was with, the, the director came to her and said, you know, we need to look after our staff, so we should all go back to Scotland and uh, get on with our lives there. She said, I'm not going to. My girls need me here. She stood her ground. Everybody else went back. She stayed in Hungary, in Budapest, with some of the Hungarian staff there. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Hungary wasn't occupied, but already there was a very right-wing fascist regime there, and there were huge um, problems of getting food and so on. In fact, she used to take a barrow into the centre of Budapest early morning to the market to try and get food for her girls. But she absolutely put you know, did everything she could for her girls. She also helped um, some of the British prisoners of war in Hungary at that point. She was OK until the, the Germans did occupy. And at this point in 1942, Adolf Eichmann came to Hungary and he more or less cleared out every Jew in, in Hungary. And the Germans were aware of what um, Miss Haining, Jane Haining, was doing. They came for her. Just a single lady in her 40s. She had had medical issues. Um, the people in the in the hostel saw her go, and she just smiled and said, "I'll, I'll be back." They took her to um, an SS um, prison. Then they took her by cattle truck across Europe to Auschwitz, and she's sent back to um, Hungary to her good friend there, a postcard, which is seems to have been coded really. Um, Yes, she wrote these words. They're translated because she actually wrote in German. She wrote, this is a lady who was within days of being killed at Auschwitz. Can you believe the language? She says, how are you all? I think of you day and night, lovingly and longingly. There's not much to report from here. Even here, on the way to heaven, there are mountains, but not as beautiful or as high as ours. I send greetings to the whole family and kiss and embrace you. I mean, it's extraordinarily brave words to write, Yes, probably knowing she had very little time to live. Let me ask, how did you research the details that bring these stories to life, Dr. Dolly? It's quite difficult because sometimes stories like this get romanticized and, you know, Hollywood gets hold of them and 
you know, it's all a bit seen through rose-tinted spectacles. I was very determined to make sure that what I wrote was as close as I could be to the truth. So where, like that, I've, I've tried to find original documents or you know, copies of documents, what actually happened, what people actually said. Um, and, and, and astonishing, things are still being found out. I mean, one of the other people who I've written about here was a, another missionary, in fact. She was a another single lady. And it's interesting, there's so many single people without families. A, a single lady called Elsie Tilney, she'd been a missionary in, in France. And when the Germans invaded, she was put in an internment camp. But only very recently has a... Um, a Jewish historian actually discovered that it was her who went from Paris to Vienna to bring back his mother from uh, Vienna to Paris, which she did safely. But again, to travel across Europe at that time was a hazardous thing, and particularly for an English person in, yes. in occupied um, Europe. It's, you know, it's easy to read about, but to do these things as opposed to just staying at home yes. <laughs> takes a lot of bravery and, and a pretty tough spirit. Yeah. What's another favorite story of yours? As we talk about defying the Holocaust, you've, you've captured 10 courageous uh, people's stories. What's another favorite of yours? As you know, Vienna is the capital of Austria, but it had been taken back into Germany as a German-speaking country in 1938. And there were more actually more Jewish people living in Austria than, than in Germany. Jewish people had added hugely to the culture and uh, life of Vienna. And they were being picked out for particularly vicious treatment, being made to scrub pavements with their toothbrushes and being insulted and generally attacked. There was an um, Episcopalian chaplain attached to the British embassy there. He saw what was going on and realised that at that point, it was still possible for Jews to leave Vienna, to leave Austria, as long as they had a visa. They could only get a visa if it was shown that they had a baptismal certificate to show that they were Christian as opposed to Jewish. So he had this idea of bringing people to his chapel, giving them very basic instruction in Christian beliefs mm -hmm. and issuing them with a, a baptismal certificate, which allowed them then to apply for a visa to get away. Fascinating. And again, I mean, he was an old, he was a man, who in, I think he was in his 70s by now, yeah. He's, you know, a frail man. Uh, and again, he, he did this and gradually over that summer, there were queues of Jews um, outside his chapel who then obviously went with their certificate to the embassy and got themselves a visa and got away. And some very well-known Jewish people did so. Our conversation today with uh, historian Tim Dowley. In the book, it's written, Some Christians did choose to stand with suffering Jews in the Holocaust. Many more Christians, however, chose to stare silently away from the flames. Here you're quoting author Sidney Hall from his book on anti-Semitism. What have you discovered as you process the horror of the relative silence of Christians during the Holocaust? I, I think it's very important to know of this, but it's, I, I find it impossible to judge because who of us knows what we would do in that situation? Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible condemnation that they didn't do anything, but who am I to say that I, what I would do in that? I think none of us know I mean, I wonder if some of the people in the book I've written had any idea of the courage they had 
or the toll it would take on them to do what they did. There was a Catholic priest in, in Brussels, Don Bruno, who'd been a scholar. He was living as a monk in a monastery and was studying the early church fathers and, you know, researching them. He's the last person you'd expect. But then when he saw the need, he put all that on one side for the time being and spent the, the last years in the war protecting Jewish children. Often their parents had been taken off to the east and, 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 and liquidated, but he found safe houses for them. And then once he'd found them, he would visit them to make sure they were being looked after, that they were safe and well and happy. But then after the war, he just slotted back into his academic work. Hmm. And if you'd asked him before if that's something he would do, I, I doubt that he would have imagined himself doing any such things. Right. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. One last thought, though. In the U.S. and other places, we appear to be moving quickly toward a time when American Christians are going to be persecuted. How should these stories prepare us? I think just take strength from them. And I think, I think it's a matter of always being vigilant of what is happening in our times. That um, I think these things can creep up on us. You know, if, if you'd asked Germans in the 1920s, I doubt very much anybody could ever imagine the terrible things that were about to happen, but things change quickly, as we all know in the, in the moment. I mean, apart from COVID, the political change seems to be happening at rapid pace, yes. you know, for better or worse. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the effort that you've put into this. These are wonderful stories uh, in Defying the Holocaust by Dr. Tim Dowley. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a great day there in London. We're going to stick around here and get to Dr. Charlie Dyer and his answers to your questions next on The Land and the Book. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is seated with a Ah, cup of coffee at his hand, I think. Or is that uh, Diet Coke? He's got a, a Bible there, and he's ready to answer your questions. They're welcome anytime, by the way, at thelandandthebook.org. And Charlie, you ready to go? I'm ready, John, though you'll never find a cup of coffee near me. I know. I don't, I don't know how that slipped out of my mouth. I know you better than that. Let's go to Mike's question. Assume with me that there are two believers, one being Job and the other Fred. Uh, they both loved God and everything was basically equal between their lives. Faith, love towards God, they were good moral men. The only difference between the two is the suffering Job endured. For whatever reason, Fred's life just wasn't difficult. Question, do you believe Job will be rewarded more than Fred in heaven because of the extreme hardship that Job endured here on earth? Your thoughts? Yeah, we do know that God gives individuals different temperaments and different abilities. In fact, I, I, what comes to mind initially is the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Jesus tells the story there of a man going on a journey, and he gives three servants different amounts of property, each according to his ability, it says. The first two double the amount that they were given, one from five to ten, the other from two to four. And when they appear before the master, he says exactly the same thing to each one. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many more. The third servant was judged because he accomplished nothing with what he'd been given. So how does that apply? Well, I believe God has different roads for each of us to walk. 
Some have more difficulty, others have less. Some have more materially, while others have less. God knows our individual temperaments, and in the end, he'll judge us according to the faithfulness we've demonstrated in the circumstances in which we were placed. So in that sense, both Job and Fred could receive the same commendation if they were equally faithful in using their gifts and talents and in responding to the circumstances in which they found themselves. Uh, The second thing, though, is we also know there are differences in lives and that those who've suffered and responded by trusting God often grow and mature more spiritually. I like the way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 4.17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Uh, In the Bible, Job was singled out as a test case in this spiritual battle uh, because God said, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So in that sense, there was no Fred to compare with uh, Job. Uh, I would like to end, though, with one last point. At any given time in life, we can look at someone and say, wow, they're more like Job or, boy, they're more like Mm -hmm. Fred. But in reality, we all go through different times of blessing and times of trial. And God uses both to help mature us here on earth, and he will reward his followers based on how well they respond to life's circumstances and to how faithfully they use the gifts and talents he's given them for his glory. But not to put too uh, fine a point on it, I think you're saying there is no particular glory or reward in suffering per se. Uh, not in suffering, but there is in in how we respond to that suffering. Yes. And I think that's why Job was that test case, yes. Another Job question from Joanne. She says, I was reading in Job, and there's something I can't wrap my little brain around. This is in Job 1, verse 6, where Satan has the conversation with God. How can Satan be in God's presence when God can't allow sin in his presence? Yeah, and I'll start with this. One attribute of God is omnipresence. The reality that sin is always in his presence in the sense that he's present everywhere, including here on earth where there is sin. As David said in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So obviously heaven's a different place than here on earth. And that's why it creates more difficulty in in your understanding here. But I think there must be different levels of access in heaven. Uh, Ezekiel 28 described Satan as the real king of Tyre. And in the passage, Ezekiel says Satan was a, a guardian cherub on the holy mountain of God. But when he sinned, God drove him in disgrace from the Mount of God and expelled him from that place. So Satan lost his exalted place in the area of heaven closest to God's holy presence. Job 1.6 suggests that all angels must at some point need to present themselves before God. We're not told why, and, and that creates the difficulty. You know, Are they summoned for a divine evaluation, or is this some other type of gathering? We're just not told. But evidently, the gathering includes all angelic beings, including those like Satan who've fallen. But they're still permitted this limited access into some part of the heavenly realm. Now, here's the good news. Revelation 12 talks about a time uh, in the future when there's going to be a war in heaven between the good angels led by Michael and the fallen angels led by Satan. And at that time, Satan is going to be hurled down out of heaven and his angels with him, it says in Revelation 12. Now, that's the point at which all of heaven will be purged of evil. Mm -hmm. Satan will be confined first to earth, then the abyss, back to earth, and then finally to the lake of fire where he'll be judged for all eternity. So we don't know exactly why God permits Satan to have limited access to heaven in our present age, but we do know that his time of access is going to soon come to an end. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. This is segment three. My name's John Geiger, and there are four segments for someone who's never listened before. Charlie, what is segment four all about? 
Segment four is uh, devotional. I want to take people to a place in Israel, describe the scene, hopefully in a way that helps them see where, where we are, and then open the book and talk about what God says about that scene and its application to our life today. That's still to come here on The Land and the Book. Boy, Troy has uh, emailed a, a quite a powerful testimony. He says, I'm in the middle of a cancer battle. The prognosis is good. I'm trusting God and his will for me fully. My life did a 180-degree turnaround after the diagnosis. I believe God had no choice but to allow the cancer. I've never asked, why me? I was living a total carnal life with little regard for Jesus and his love for me. I sometimes wonder if I was truly saved before, but I always come back to the scripture that says God disciplines those he loves. There are hundreds of people praying for me, and I will not meet the vast majority this side of glory. I tell anyone who offers to pray that I welcome their prayers. Now, I believe God hears all prayers uttered, and he chooses what to do with them. A primary reason I'm so open about this is to show respect for the person, even though they know I do not embrace their belief system. My hope is that my acceptance of them may persuade them to investigate Christianity more closely. Now, should I be doing this? Yeah, and I'll start by saying, at first, thanks for writing. You know, God is great. He's gracious. And he's working all things together in your life, even though cancer by itself you know, isn't a good thing. But to answer the question, since God's omniscient, he does indeed know everything, including the prayers voiced by everyone on earth. And he can choose to answer those prayers, but that doesn't mean he's obligated to respond to them. Uh, we know there's a barrier between humanity and God, and it can only be bridged through Christ. And even then, we know that we need to approach God in the proper attitude. Uh, for example, in Psalm 66, the psalmist said, If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Uh, James reminds us in, in James 5 that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, does that mean you should tell unbelievers not to pray for you? No. What I suggest is that you especially focus on sharing with them what God has done for you physically and spiritually. You do want to encourage them and continue building that relationship with them. But you also want to be sure to use the time to describe how God has been working in your life, even through the time of physical difficulty, just like you did in your email. My favorite verse in that regard is Colossians 4, 6. Paul told the believers, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Gracious words that have just enough spiritual salt in them create that thirst in a listener's life to know more about this God whom you love so much. So take that as an encouragement, not a criticism. I suspect you're already doing what I've just suggested, and I just want to encourage you to keep it up. Question here about Moses. Do we know the age of Moses when he went to live with the daughter of Pharaoh? How did he learn about the traditions and beliefs of his people? Yeah, Exodus 2 uh, says Moses was given back to his mother to nurse him. It then adds in the next verse, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So it sounds like Moses went to live in the house of Pharaoh after he was weaned. Now, in much of the world, children can continue to breastfeed until they're somewhere between one and five years old. So that's a bit of a span. Uh, we can't really be more precise than that. However, it's likely that Moses learned to walk and speak while still with his real parents. Moses might have been taught as a very young child about his heritage and about the God of his fathers. Once he was taken to Pharaoh's household, the Bible has a gap of time where we really don't know what happened. In Exodus 2, the account skips from childhood in verse 10 to adulthood in verse 11. And uh, so there's a quite a gap there. Uh, but we do know this from uh, the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Uh, Anyway, all that to say, we know he must have learned about the origins of the Hebrew people and about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from his parents. But we simply don't have any idea of the rest of his childhood or young adulthood from the Bible. And we thank you for sending in those questions. Again, yours is welcome with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. At our website, you'll find information on everything you need to know about the land and the book, our guests for today, past programs, future programs, and more. You can always hear it again as well at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional is next. Stick around. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. John Geiger here with a confession. It took me a long time before I finally realized that the Bible is really centered around a couple of very basic foundational blockbuster, if you will, covenants. We're going to get to one of the Old Testament covenants in a moment as Charlie Dyer brings us his devotional. First, though, let's turn our focus toward this Holy Land experience, a testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and now shares this. I remember being on the Mount of Olives and coming upon the Garden of Gethsemane and seeing among the ancient olive trees the very area where Jesus prayed and wept and sweat drops of blood that awful night before his crucifixion. And then gazing up from the ground and looking across the Kidron Valley and seeing the old city of Jerusalem with its eastern gate, it became obvious that Jesus very well could have seen his enemies leave the city gates, come across the Kidron Valley, climb the Mount of Olives, and then reach the very place where he knelt and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I asked myself, why didn't he leave? Why didn't he flee the mountain and escape before they got there? He could have, but he didn't because of his loyal and faithful and deep love for me and for you too. The scriptures I'd read about the Garden of Gethsemane since my early days in Sunday school came alive that day. It wasn't just a story. It was real. Thanks very much for that perspective. Well, don't let the word covenant scare you off. Charlie, what you got for us? Over the next few months, I thought it would be helpful if we could occasionally look at some of the Bible's most amazing prophecies. And our prophetic journey today actually begins in southern Iraq, almost 200 miles southeast of Baghdad, in the ancient city of Ur. It was here where God first called Abram, the man we know as Abraham. Abraham listened to God and started out on a journey to a land promised by God, a land Abraham had never seen. God later repeated his call to Abraham in the city of Haran, almost 600 miles northwest of Abraham's starting point in what is today Turkey. 600 miles of hard walking, and Abraham still had another 400 miles to go till he reached his destination. But what was the promise given by God that led Abraham on such a long and difficult journey? God promised this wandering nomad a permanent homeland. He promised this childless husband that his descendants would grow into a great nation. And he promised this son of an idol worshiper that the God of the universe would ultimately bless all the peoples of the earth through him. At the ripe old age of 75, an age today when many are collecting social security and reminiscing over the good old days, 
Abraham and his wife set out for this unknown land promised to them by God. And when they finally arrived at the great oak tree of Moreh near the Canaanite city of Shechem, God reappeared and told him, you've arrived. Abraham responded by pitching his tent and building an altar. Settle down and sacrifice. Unroll the tent and give thanks to God. Several years later, God ratified his covenant to Abraham. In those days, people sealed an agreement by sacrificing an animal and walking between the pieces of the carcass. The thought behind this action was, and may this be done to me if I don't keep my side of the agreement. That's definitely more direct and forceful than signing some promissory note. But look carefully at the signing ceremony in Genesis 15. When it came time for the parties to walk through the pieces of the animal, only God walked through. The passage says it this way, And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And note that God promised more than just a land. He mentioned Abraham's descendants. Earlier in the chapter, God had also reaffirmed his promise that Abraham would have a multitude of physical descendants. Taking him out to look at the night sky, God said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So what's the amazing prophecy? It's this. God promised that Abraham and his physical descendants would someday inherit the land of Canaan. God first made the promise when Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah was 65. And Isaac wasn't born till Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Though it sounded impossible, God predicted Abraham would father a nation that would inherit the land of Canaan. History confirmed the accuracy of God's prediction. God grew the descendants of Abraham into the great nation of Israel, and they did occupy the land, at least for a time. But eventually they were deported from the land to Babylon, allowed to return, and then deported again by the Romans. And for the next 1,900 years, it looked as if God's promise had come and gone. The prayers of the Jewish people next year in Jerusalem seemed like little more than a fading dream. People tried to save God's reputation by saying he hadn't really meant what he said, that the promise was conditional, or that it had been transferred to others, or that it was really intended to be understood in a spiritual, not literal sense. And yet, as we read what God predicted, a promise backed by God's solemn oath, it seemed as if people were doing everything possible to make excuses for God rather than taking him at his word. The human authors of the Bible believed what God had promised. For example, the prophet Micah ended his book announcing God would again shepherd his people and have compassion on them. How could he be so sure this would happen? The very last verse of the book tells us why he had such confidence. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah was certain there was a future for Israel because God made a promise, and God keeps his word. But couldn't God fulfill his promise in a spiritual sense through the church? Couldn't the church be the spiritual children of Abraham and heaven be the promised land really intended by God? The Apostle Paul provides the answer in Romans 11, the one passage in the New Testament that specifically describes the relationship between the children of Israel 
Abraham's physical descendants, and the church. And what Paul says there is extremely important. Paul does admit that in the current age, most Jews are not experiencing the blessings promised to them by God. Indeed, the Gentiles, pictured as a wild olive shoot, have been grafted into that place of blessing. But Paul then turns to his largely Gentile audience and cautions them against boasting about their current blessing. And what he tells them helps clarify how God will fulfill his promises to Israel. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't miss what Paul just said. What the church is experiencing today is not some spiritual fulfillment of the promises God made to Israel. Paul said a day is coming when Israel will experience the fulfillment of all God has promised them. How can Paul be so sure? Because the Jewish people are, quote, beloved for the sake of the fathers. And Paul is referring to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul believed in the future for Israel because God's gifts, including his gift of the promised land and his calling of Abraham to that land, are irrevocable. Once God makes a promise, it stands forever. Israel's now back in her land. A nation scattered for almost two millennia has been reborn. And while the nation of Israel isn't yet experiencing all her promised blessings, writers like Micah and the Apostle Paul look with confidence to a time in the future when they will be fulfilled. Because the promises are grounded in the unchanging character of God who keeps his word. So what does this amazing prophecy have to do with you? I look at the nation of Israel today and I'm reminded that God can be trusted to keep his word. And the God who promised a future for Israel is the same God who promised he would never leave us nor forsake us, that he would provide us with grace to help in time of need, and that he will someday return to take us to be with him in heaven. I'm so glad the God of the Bible is a God who can be trusted to keep his word to Israel and to us. Boy, what a great word of reassurance. Thanks, Charlie. If you haven't visited our Facebook page lately, we encourage you to check that out. Got that thing loaded with great stories and photos and articles you don't want to miss. Head to thelandandthebook.org and click on our Facebook icon. Time's gone. We thank you for listening today to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.